Our scripture readings are from Matthew 6:10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Matthew 4:8 through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And Matthew twenty-eight sixteen through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word of the Lord. Good morning again. So as we've been getting used to Louisiana and Baton Rouge, we've gone out and explored different areas. Uh, One day, a couple months ago, our power went out and our air conditioning was gone, which made it really urgent upon us to go somewhere, see something. And so we drove as a family to the mall of Louisiana. It's a nice mall. My three-year-old, Laura, my daughter, comes into this beautiful hallway with skylights and all these beautiful stores and shops, and she's squealing with delight, literally squealing. And she looks up at her mom and at me, and she says, I'm squealing because I'm so happy. I just love this whole kingdom. I think it's time for me to start getting a little worried. But in all honesty, she spoke better than she knew. The mall really is a kingdom. It's meant to be a place that tells us we are deserving of nice things. A place that trains us to indulge our whims. It's a place where salespeople quickly dispatch themselves in response to our every wish. It's where we anoint ourselves with luxury after luxury. Or at least do so in our minds as we window shop. It doesn't need to be the mall. It could be Cabela's. It could be any number of places that we go. But there is something common about all these places, even places that don't seem so commercialized. The world communicates to us everywhere and all the time. Have it the way you want it. You deserve it. And all of us have bought into it somewhere. So I ask this question as we start today. What is your kingdom? 
What is your kingdom? Today we are looking at the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. Those aren't hard words to say. But do we mean them? Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Does that describe us? Is God's kingdom first in our pursuits? Well, let me ask, how many of us are willing to give those extra few hours to the office but come to church too spent to serve? How many of us find hours every day for Facebook, ESPN, YouTube, or Fox News, and yet can't find time for serious prayer and Bible reading? How many of us are ready to jump in to share our thoughts about our politics, our sports teams, how to raise our children, or how our business is just what everyone needs? but never find time to share Jesus? How many of us are spending more and more money on vacations and luxuries for ourselves while our giving to the church remains flat? How many of us are striving in every way we can to make our lives a little better? but remain perfectly content to let our spiritual life stagnate? How many of us are betting our pursuit for bigger houses, nicer cars, and expensive hobbies that Jesus was just pulling our leg when he said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Ha, he's just exaggerating. What is your kingdom? How have we become so worldly? And why are we so complacent about it? Do these words not mean anything to us from 1 John? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. How do we get ourselves into a position where those words are dismissed and forgotten and we rush out to the next big thing to put in our house. The next promotion in our career. Jesus' first public words need to be heard afresh by us. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
We need to learn what it means to pray, Thy kingdom come. We are in the middle of a series called As It Is, to study on the Lord's Prayer. And the image is seeing the words as it is through glasses. Because we need constantly to be reminded to set our sights, to put our vision on what it is in heaven, not what our reality is on earth. Those who live in the vision of Jesus are setting their eyes on the kingdom of heaven. And they recognize that the malls and the cruise ships and the Disney worlds are distractions from the true kingdom. But many of us have taken off our glasses. Many of us have chosen nearsightedness. Many of us are on the brink of utter blindness. We need to fix our eyes on thy kingdom come. Now you may be skeptical about God's kingdom. I mean, why live your life for a kingdom that may not even be real? Why go to all the sacrifice? I hope if that is in your heart, that you listen carefully today. For there is no doubt that God's kingdom is coming and time is ticking. Today we are going to survey the whole Bible to see that there are only two kingdoms. There is God's kingdom and there is the kingdom of the world. And you cannot be a citizen of both. Do you know which kingdom you belong to? It's what kingdom you're living for. Jesus describes the kingdom of God as a pearl of great price that is worth selling all that we have that we might have it. Today I hope to show you that the pearl that you, this pearl that you may choose it over all the vain glories of the world that you may pray with all your affections thy kingdom come that you would live your life So that when he comes, and he does come, he will say to you, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy. Are you in that kingdom? Let us take a survey through the Bible. I want us to understand the message of God's kingdom. And you have a a handout that will help you follow along and Perhaps today's message needs to be recorded and pressed into your mind more than even others. Because we need to recognize that the entire Bible is about God's kingdom. And we need to understand that God's people are about God's kingdom. So it is imperative that we see God's story, that we see where it is going, and that we recognize that either we are in it or we will be expelled for eternity. So as we look at God's kingdom through the scriptures, we see that there are five stages of God's kingdom. The first stage of God's kingdom is the creation. God's kingdom encompasses all creation at the very beginning. We see this in the first chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 says this, And God blessed them, Adam and Eve, And God said to them, 
Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth and he makes everything about it so that he can look at it and with great pride say, very good. And he places his image bearers, Adam and Eve, on the earth. And he gives them the command, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth as image bearers of God's glory. All of the earth was God's kingdom. All of the earth was living for God. We read further in Genesis chapter 2 that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God gives Adam and Eve a perfect garden a beautiful, blissful, idyllic place. I imagine it looks like Kansas City. But a beautiful place. In this place called Eden, it was abundant with fruit. It was beautiful. Work was easy and delightful. I mean, what's our job? To multiply. That's the kind of job any guy would love to find, right? That's easy work. There was no sin. There was no sickness. There was no death. There was no hunger. Adam and Eve didn't even know what a tear was. Because there were none. There was no curse. God was with them, walking in the garden. God was as close to them as your husband or wife sitting next to you and delighted in his children. The kingdom of God was Eden. Adam and Eve were made in the image of God and were commanded to multiply, thereby covering the earth with Eden and filling creation with the image bearers of God. So that everywhere you looked across the whole earth, God's image bearers were there reflecting God's glory. And it was beautiful. No defect. That was God's kingdom at the beginning, at creation. But then the second stage of God's kingdom comes, which is the fall. In the fall, God's kingdom is divided into two dominions. We see this if we turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. After Adam and Eve had sinned by eating the one fruit, violating the one rule, and bringing sin into the creation, God drove out the man in Genesis three twenty-four, And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve's sin 
brought darkness, curse, and unrighteousness into creation. Those things do not belong in the kingdom of God. So when he, they committed that disobedience, they no longer belonged in Eden. And God expelled them from Eden, from the kingdom of God. And he put a barrier between Eden and the world. And he put a cherubim with a flaming sword to prevent anyone from coming back to Eden. So there was a divide between God's perfect kingdom and the rest of the world. There are now two dominions. Eden, or as it is called for the rest of Scripture, the kingdom of God. That's the one kingdom. And the world. That's the other kingdom. We see this reflected in the Lord's Prayer. When you say, Our Father in heaven, you are talking about God's rule over all creation. That's the first dominion. That's the first meaning of God's dominion. God's rule over all creation is seen in the words, Our Father in heaven. When we pray to Our Father in heaven, we are saying, You are sovereign over all. Everything that happens is underneath your rule. So even though there are two dominions, the kingdom of God and the world, God remains sovereign over all creation. And that's why we pray to him as our Father in heaven. That describes his sovereignty. But then the second dominion is God's rule over his people. And we see that also in the Lord's Prayer when we pray, Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You see there is a kingdom where God's people obey, where God's people do God's will, it's in heaven. And when we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying for that kingdom where God reigns and his people love and follow and serve him comes to earth. That is the Eden that is lost. So as descendants of Adam and Eve, we need to recognize that we are all born outside of the kingdom of God. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 3. Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again. Those words caused Nicodemus great consternation. How can you be born again? It is an impossible thing for someone to be born again. But the point for the sake right now is this. You are not born into the kingdom of God. You have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. You are born in the kingdom of the world. And unless you are born again, you will die and receive the fate of the kingdom of this world. Now, the world though it is always under God's sovereign control, is currently under the domain of the ruler of this age, which is Satan. It is a bit of a mystery why God permits this, but God has allowed the world to be ravaged by the roaring lion of Satan, of the prince of the air. That does not mean that Satan is able to prevent God's will from happening. It means simply that God has permitted Satan to have a period where he ravages the world. And that is what he is doing now 
in the world. Think about the fall. All of the sorrows of the world fall upon a man who put the kingdom of self in front of the kingdom of God. All of the sins and the cancers and the illnesses and the heartbreaks and the tears lay at the feet of a man who said, My kingdom come, not yours. Think of Adam. He lived for nearly 700 years. All of those years outside of the kingdom. He had child after child after child. And he watched the brokenness of the world that he created damage generation after generation after generation. For 700 years. Do you know what I imagine is in that guy's heart? I wish I had crushed the serpent when I had the chance. Because all my children are going to die. All my children are going to be sick. All my children are going to endure the curse that I brought on them for choosing my kingdom over the world, uh, choosing my kingdom over God's. How much he would love to reverse that. What about you? You are parents. You are mothers and fathers. Are you teaching your children to pursue first God's kingdom? Or are you teaching them to live for Saturday night and come what may Sunday morning? Are you teaching them burn the midnight oil for your career? Do what it takes to build your kingdom, to get glory, to make yourself happy. That's what the world is. If that is what you are living for, let me be very blunt. You are buying your ticket to hell. You are buying your place in condemnation. And it will be terrible. It will be awful. But you know what will probably be worse? It's when your kid shows up. When he comes in the gates of hell. And he says to you, Dad, why did you teach me to love the world and not God? Because they're going to follow in your footsteps. And you will spend eternity not just hearing your own screams of torment, but the torments of your children and your grandchildren who you set on the course of my kingdom come, not thy kingdom come. I ask you the same thing to put yourself in Adam's shoes. Right now you have a decision. You can choose Jesus. You can choose the kingdom of God. You can choose repentance. You can crush the snake in your life and in your family. 
Don't look back on that opportunity with regret. You have the choice. Choose to follow Jesus and to model Jesus in your family. The third stage of the kingdom of God, though, is the seed. God's kingdom is promised in the Old Testament. It is amazing that in the midst of God's curse upon Adam and Eve for their disobedience, God makes a promise. Look at Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring, your seed, and her offspring, her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What grace is this? In the midst of the rebellion of the first image creators, God holds back the penalty of death to allow for grace. And instead of striking Adam and Eve dead for their rebellion, he promises that there will be a child who comes, a seed of the woman, who will someday crush the head of the serpent. We should be startled that there is a page four in our Bibles. We really should. But our God's will for us is grace. Our God's will for us is forgiveness. Our God's will for us is life. And that's what we see even in the middle of the curse. But don't lose track of this. There are these two offspring, two kingdoms, They are set against each other. God has put enmity, has put hatred between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And there is war that is constant between the seed of Eve and the seed of the serpent. And with a careful eye as you go through the Old Testament, you will see these wars come to the forefront. The first example is Cain and Abel. That is certainly an example of terrible sin breaking out. But Satan knows there's two children. One of these is the seed that will crush me. I'll strike first. And so he works in Cain to blow and strike down Abel, thinking that that will destroy the seed. But that doesn't destroy the seed, because there is a third. There is Seth who comes, and the seed continues. But we see this seed And the battle between the offspring of the evil one and the offspring of the woman show up again and again. It's what lies behind Moses and Pharaoh. Why does Pharaoh want to kill all the firstborn boys? Because Satan wants the seed to die. It happens between David and Goliath. Why is this mighty giant of a man so bent on destroying the royal line of Israel? Because that's the seed. So the Bible carries this story through. When we come, but it is important that we recognize here at the very beginning, when it says that the serpent will strike his heel, but the seed will crush his head. One is a wound, but the other is a death blow. The kingdom of God will defeat the kingdom of darkness. That is promised right there in Genesis chapter 3. However, we see many generations come and many generations go and things only seem to get worse. 
Do we trust this promise? I mean, it, it got so bad that God wiped out the earth with a flood. Do we trust this promise? Do we live our lives according to this promise? But then, Genesis chapter 12, we come across these words. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went to the land of Canaan. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, your seed, I will give this land. After all the sin and destruction of the flood and the Tower of Babel, yet again God comes back and promises, My promise of the seed is still coming It still stands, and it is now going to be coming through the line of Abram or Abraham. But then again, many generations went by after this, and the curse only seemed to spread. Can we believe this promise that one of Abraham's seed is going to come and bring blessing to the whole world, is going to reverse the curse and bring blessing? Can we believe that? Hundreds of years go by with no appreciable evidence that someone is coming. Until we get into the era of the kingship in Israel. And one of Abraham's descendants, who has now become a nation, named David, begins to rule on the throne. He was a good king, but he was still flawed. David received a promise, though that one of the offspring of his offspring would inherit an eternal kingdom. Listen to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, your seed after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So after hundreds of years, we have another promise of the seed. God continues to say, my plan to bring grace and forgiveness and life, to undo the darkness and the curse, and to bring righteousness, continues unthwarted. We have yet another promise. Do we trust that promise for the third time? Do we trust that promise. Things got bad after that. David's sons were increasingly terrible. God's people were increasingly disobedient. It got so bad that God took them out of Israel, out of the promised land altogether, and put them under exile. There was no one sitting on the throne of David. Do we still hope in the seed? Do we still hope in the promise? Can we really believe that it is going to come to fulfillment? The Old Testament presents the kingdom of God in seed form. A promised descendant to restore God's presence with his people. A new Eden. Indeed, a careful reader of the Old Testament sees it full of seeds, like promises and images and institutions, events and festivals. 
that if you stop at the Old Testament, they're very incomplete. The Old Testament is a story that you really get annoyed for reading. It's like it, it doesn't end. It only ends when Christ comes. Stage four, the incarnation. God's kingdom has come in Christ and is present now in his reign over the church. We call this the already part of God's kingdom. When we come into the New Testament, the very first line of Matthew's gospel, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, who is also the son of Adam. Jesus is the seed. Jesus is the promised one. God kept his promise. If you read Jesus' genealogy in the book of Luke, chapter 3, he is the 77th generation from Adam. Now, I think this is incredible. I don't think we appreciate this enough. Because the promise that was given to Adam was given thousands of years ago and was written down. The promise of Abraham was given thousands of years ago and written down. The promise of David was given thousands of years ago and written down. Written down at different times. The odds of this promise coming true over 77 generations tells you something that is undeniable. There is someone in control of history, and it's not us. Nobody can keep track of the seed and promise the seed 77 generations later except one who is the author of history, who is God. And so that Jesus came and fulfilled these promises is an amazing testimony to the truth of the Old Testament and the author of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture. Jesus is that seed. We cannot dismiss this. And where Jesus went, the kingdom of God was there. There was no darkness, there was no curse, there was no disorder. People came to him and and saw the fulfillment of their hopes. And so when we get to this passage in Matthew chapter 4, where Satan comes to tempt Jesus, what are we really seeing? We are seeing that age-old war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And Satan says, I will give you all the kingdoms, all the authority, all the glory. Just bow to me. You see, all of history has come to a focal point with Jesus. If Satan can get Jesus off track, he wins. And he offers him the big one. I am the ruler of this world. I will give you everything. I will let you have it all. Now think of the rationalizations that any one of us would have had. With everything, I could get rid of hunger. With everything, I could get rid of child abuse. With everything, I could get rid of poverty. With everything, I could get rid of terrorism. And all you're saying is bow the knee one time, make one compromise, and I can have that. 
What's more, Jesus knows that if he doesn't take this offer, the only kingdom he can receive is through a cross. He knows that's the Father's offer. You want the kingdom of God, you have to take the cross. Here's the evil one saying, I'll give you all the kingdoms. And you don't have to have the cross. What love. What amazing grace that Jesus says, be gone, Satan. I am here to do my Father's will. He rejects it. He shows us that the kingdom of God does not come with compromise with the world in any way, but only through serving God wholeheartedly. Jesus shows God as his pearl of great price. How many of us give that testimony? He came to give us the kingdom. He had the kingdom, but he came to give us the kingdom. How does he do this? He removes unrighteousness by paying for our sins on the cross. He gives himself to judgment to remove the barrier between Eden and the world. When he cried his last, the curtain of the temple was torn, which separated God from his people. By Christ's wounds, the snake's head is crushed. What grace is this? What do we deserve? Every single one of us has chosen the kingdoms of this world against the kingdom of God. Every single one of us has bowed the knee somewhere and often. And yet Jesus came not to give us what we deserve, but to offer us his grace, his life, his relationship with the Father. He has given us heaven where there are no tears No sickness, no sadness, no cancer, no brokenness. There is the presence of God. And yet, where are our affections? In a new purse, in a beer. After his resurrection... He showed himself, he showed that death itself is destroyed. And we can't miss this either. The seed that was promised is the seed that rose bodily from the dead, was seen by many witnesses who suffered for the name. This promised one is the resurrected one. We are are falling into absolute stupidity not to recognize That Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. To reject this is to choose our own destruction. Because it's patently obvious that the one that we are supposed to trust in is this one, the promised seed who rose from the dead. And Paul makes this obvious in Acts. He says to the philosophers of the age, the times of ignorance God overlooked... But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
Jesus' resurrection is the 11th hour call. Repent or face judgment. To reject the Son of God, the resurrected one, leaves us no choice but to perish. And so he comes and he says in the mountain, after conquering the kingdom, he says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. Christ is the king over all and having defeated sin, death, and darkness, he calls his people to take his rule to the ends of the earth by making disciples of all nations. This The kingdom of God then is advanced by the church making disciples, sharing the good news of Jesus and teaching the word of God. If we believe the gospel, this is the work we put all of ourselves into. This is the cry of our heart. This is what we pray when we say, Thy kingdom come. Bring the kingdom of grace to my dad, to my co-worker, to my friend, to my child. That's what I want, Lord. That's what I want more than anything. And I'm going to work for it. I want to participate in your kingdom come. In Christ, the kingdom has come. Those who trust in him are now in the kingdom of God. In him, in Christ, we are citizens of the kingdom, not of the world any longer. Let's quit acting like we're part of the world. Stage five, the consummation. Christ reigns over the new heavens and earth. We call this the not yet part of God's kingdom. Much of the kingdom of God is not visible in the world today. It's important that we distinguish between reign and realm. The reign of the kingdom of God has begun in Christ, but the realm of the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth, awaits Christ's second coming. We see the king, though. And that is enough for us to be clear that the end is coming. The promise was fulfilled. The resurrection happened. We know the king will return. And when he returns, he is going to bring judgment to those who submit to the world and life to those who confess his name. So we have a graphic. We have a graphic that I want you to look at. This is what it means. We live in the already Not yet. That means we live between Christ's first coming and his second. A famous illustration of this is that when Christ came, it was like D-Day in World War II. The death blow for the Nazis was at the victory at D-Day. That's the cross. The, The kingdom of the Allies was unstoppable at that point. But we know that there was still a lot of war still to go. There is still a lot of the world that does not know the kingdom of Christ. And that's where VE Day is. Eventually there was the final battle, the de- declare of victory in Europe, and that was the end of the battle. That's like Christ's second coming. So what does this mean? This graphic tells us that we are in Christ, and the world still continues. But what we need to recognize is that we live for the kingdom to come in the here and now. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come. We pray God's kingdom to come in three arenas. We pray for Christ to reign over us. Jesus is Lord, not you. 
You live for your kingdom, not his, not, not yours. We must be at war, not compromise, with worldliness. We must make Christ and his kingdom our pearl of great price. Second, we pray God's kingdom come means praying for Christ to grow his church. The kingdom grows through making disciples. Thus, we must pray for the gospel to go to the lost, and we must be willing to be the ones that go to them. Are we a church that will stand before Christ with many disciples that we made for him? And finally, praying for Christ to return in glory. We are praying to grow our longing that all things be made new, that he would teach us to cry, come, Lord Jesus. There's nothing I'm living for that I wouldn't rather have Jesus here now. God's kingdom is coming. Now is the time of repentance. When Christ returns, the secrets of the heart will be revealed. There will be eternal judgment for some, and eternal glory for others. If the world ended today, if you died today, would Christ find you serving his kingdom or yours? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He will receive you if you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kingdom. Search our hearts for the seeds, the tares, the weeds of worldliness. Give us the courage to do the hard work of pulling them out. Show us the pearl of great price. Draw our affections to you that we may start every day not thinking about what I have to do for my kingdom. But, oh, Lord Jesus, come and come in me. Therefore, we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.